Good morning. My name is Meredith Barnes. The scripture reading today comes from the New Testament book of Luke. I'll be reading from chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will, be, that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about the child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished, but Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, well, hi, everybody. I'm not Bill, as you can see. You've noticed. I don't need that, thank you. In fact, I'm going to want to step and walk through that area, so it's a good thing that disappeared. It would been awkward if I had just walked into it and it fell over. Uh, Brian Jacobson, I probably ought to introduce myself, not just act like you all might know who I am. Uh, I am the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Oostburg, Wisconsin. That'll be a church of some familiarity to many of you at least, maybe all of you, because that is Bill's, I don't know, home church exactly. He grew up in a different church, but he'd been serving as our youth pastor for about 10 years before you all hired him to be the pastor of this congregation. And so whatever gifts he has, I hope I help nurture whatever... Um, Weaknesses he has. I hope I helped, I don't know, do whatever you do with weaknesses. Um, I accentuate mine. That's what I do with my weaknesses. <laughs> I put bows on them and put them out front for everybody. Um, I was thinking about this time with all of you a little bit and thinking, I thought I might, in my head, I imagined myself saying something rather cliche to all of you, which was something like, I bring greetings on behalf of the congregation at First Presbyterian in Oostburg. And then I thought to myself, like, what might I mean by that, that I bring greetings? Because that's a little cheesy. You don't know hardly any of them personally, and they don't know hardly any of you personally. So what might it mean that I would bring greetings on their behalf? And I thought, I think this is what it means. There are a few connections. There's a, a couple that just joined your church, Eric and Danielle Fair. Um, and Hadley that are related to people in our church. Reese and Rebecca are related to people in our church. So there are some connections. But what I mean when I say I bring greetings on behalf 
of the congregation I serve is that whether, whether we know each other personally or not, we're rooting for you guys. Like, for real, we are rooting for what God is doing in your, in your church. And I, and I would believe the same in, re, in return. I, whatever Bill is saying right now to our congregation, or probably has said already, our service started at 8.30, and so they're probably done by now with the first one. But uh, anyways, that's probably enough preamble. Um, we started a series last week. You all started that. Those of you that were here, you heard Bill preach about this idea that uh, he and I sat down and we thought, what are we going to talk about this Christmas season? There's this challenge every Christmas season, especially when you've been doing the pastoring thing for a while, to come up with some new way of highlighting a very familiar story. And so what we did is we thought, let's, let's take a look at these shepherds, these, these men who were some of the first people to hear the gospel message, to hear the good news, and, and let's observe the way they responded to hearing that good news. And, and the idea is that we can now, all these years later, all this separation between us, we can still respond in similar fashion to what they did. That's the idea. They heard the good news and had a series of responses to it. We hear the good news today, and we have opportunity to respond as well. Maybe by looking at what they did, we can know what we should do. That's the idea. And so we are going to be looking at the idea that the shepherds heard the good news and looked into it. Last week, Bill said they dropped everything. This week, we're going to talk about how they looked into the good news. And this is a particularly meaningful message for me because what we're going to be talking about today is this idea that the Christian faith, and you're going to hear me say this a number of times, that the Christian faith is about more than blind faith. Before we get there, though, let me, let me highlight where I'm getting out of the passage, this idea that the shepherds looked into the good news of the gospel message they received. It comes to us from chapter 2, verse 15 of Luke. You just heard it read, and yet, just so that we're on the same page with it, uh, you see that the angels had left them. They'd gone back into heaven, and the, and the shepherds said to each other, let's go see this thing that has happened. I find this to be a fascinating response for a number of reasons, not the least of which is trying to picture myself in their shoes a little bit. Right? I think that's, oh, there you are, Danielle. I, didn't realize, I mentioned you and didn't even know you were here. You are kind of tucked behind somebody, so hi. Um, so uh, I put myself in their shoes and I think to myself, I'm out in a field, however many years ago this was, and the Bible says an angel of the Lord appeared to them with this message. And then an angelic choir filled, whatever angelic choirs do, I don't, I've never actually seen one, so I don't know how they fill the sky or how bright their radiance. I don't know any of that. But I do know that these guys were witness to an angel of the Lord appearing, making a proclamation of a Savior, and then an angelic choir celebrating the whole thing. And I think to myself, how convinced would I have been at that moment that it was all true? I don't, I don't know. I think maybe pretty convinced. Pretty convinced. Either that or I'd think I was crazy or had accidentally ingested some psychedelics or something. I don't quite know what, what I might think to myself in that moment. 
But I can't help but think I'd be a little bit convinced of the whole thing. And so it's fascinating to me anyways that after hearing this good news, after this, I mean, one of the most awesome displays of power they had likely ever seen, the, most, the boldest proclamation they'd ever heard, the coolest news they'd ever received, and instead of just going, instead of basking in the glow of it, their first response is to, as Bill said last week, is to drop everything, and then they go and they look into it. That is such comfort for me, because I've always been somebody that needed to look into things. I've always been somebody that needed more than just the idea of, say, blind faith. Now, how many of you have heard that term before, blind faith? I feel like it's a term that we use a lot. I feel like it's, I don't know that, there, there, I realize as I get older that there's so much about my Christian life that was just, you ever heard that phrase that, that children, are, that our faith is more caught than taught? You ever heard that phrase before? I, I start to realize the, the, the beauty of that phrase as I get older. There's so many things that I have just taken in over the years of being a Christian, things I just assumed to be true that were never formally taught to me. They were just modeled for me. They were just shown to me by other Christians. They were just, we just talked in this way. And one of the things that I think we talk about, one of the ways we talk about faith, we characterize it as being blind. This idea that, that the Christian faith in many ways is a faith that's to be accepted without evidence, right? That, that is just like you ought to believe. Here I am proclaiming it, or the way it was said classically in Assemblies of God circles, which is my background, the idea was God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And it was on that basis that I was to believe everything I was taught in church. Just take it in. If some pastor says it, it's got to be true. Well, I mean, another thing you realize as you get older, that some pastors are full of... um, things they shouldn't be full of, you know, and, uh, and that not everything that comes from the pulpit is gospel truth, and so we have to be discerning and careful about that. Anyways, as I think about all these things, I, I'm glad for the, the chance to look into stuff, and as I think about this idea of blind faith, I actually have a video for us that, that helps exemplify to me why blind faith ought not be the thing we're after, or at least not solely, right? There is a part of the Christian life I recognize that there's a part of the Christian life or the Christian faith that in some sense has to be blind. I cannot, for instance, put on display for you the risen Savior today. I, I just cannot force him to manifest himself bodily for you. I cannot prove my Christian faith to you. If you watched my life long enough, hopefully it would prove something to you. But I can't make him appear. And so there is a sense in which anytime somebody boldly or even kind of uh, sheepishly proclaims the gospel, that there's an invitation to respond without seeing. And yet, and yet, I think there are limitations to this idea of blind faith. And our video that we're about to show, it's a commercial. Let me set it up for you. Uh, it's one of those AT&T commercials, the just okay is not okay ones. Maybe you've seen it before. It's the one in the hospital room. And... I won't cue it too much, but in my mind, this is an example of why blind faith all by itself has some limitations and that that biblical faith is about more than blind faith. So let's watch our video. Have you ever worked with Dr. Francis? Oh yeah, he's okay. Just okay? Guess who just got reinstated? Well, not officially. Nervous? Yeah. Yeah, me too. 
Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. I'll see you in there. Just okay is not okay. Yeah, that's one of my favorite commercials. I mean, I normally hate commercials. I'll just put that out there. I feel like I need to say that. My son is so tired of me talking about commercials. I dissect them for him. I want him to learn how to be discerning about the ridiculous stuff he sees on TV, so I'm trying to do that for him. And it's annoying, probably. <laughs> one of the joys of parenting, isn't it, is to be a little bit annoying to your children? Isn't that one of the things that... I feel like that's one of my joys in life. One of the things I hold on to most tightly is like, that's a dad thing, I think, right? Like if I see him squirming, I'm like, I'm going to double down on whatever's happening. <laughs> so I am doubling down right now. Um, this commercial is fascinating to me. J- just imagine for a minute, this I suppose in a serious way, and some of you won't have to imagine all that much. Imagine, or, or maybe, maybe it doesn't even have to be you, it could just be a family member, but imagine you know somebody who's been diagnosed, has had one of those life-changing diagnoses. It's, again, it's not hard to imagine. Some of us might be, some of you might be walking through this right now. One of those diagnoses that just changes your life, cancer or something. And imagine that you're able to, to put together your dream team, whatever it is. Maybe it's heart disease, and you're able to find the best heart surgeon in the entire world. And you fly this person in, and you find the best anesthesiologist and the best medical facility, everything is put together to to your perfect specifications for whatever it is you've been diagnosed with. It's the perfect team assembled. I'd wonder to myself, how much faith would it take as you're laying in, lying, laying, as you're reclined in the hospital bed, um, anybody else know what the answer to that is? It's lying? I don't know. Lying in the hospital bed. how much faith does it take before that anesthesiologist, like in your mind when that anesthesiologist says, count backwards from 10? Like you've got your dream team assembled, but how much faith is it taking in that moment? Because right at a certain age, you start to know of stories of people at least, or maybe know people who, who have been put under and not come back out. Right? So even under the best circumstances, there's some faith required in this. But now imagine being this guy. That's what's fascinating to me. This idea of blind faith, I thought of that because imagine being that guy. I love that scene. There's a couple scenes in the commercial, by the way, that are just funny to me. And again, it's in the dissecting mode. Uh, There's every scene where the doctor appears with the nurse. In the the door is this reflection of an x-ray. Now, it's funny because those are things that most of us aren't going to notice. But I just happen to have watched this commercial a lot in preparation for this, and I start to notice these details, these things that are meant to make us feel anxious about the whole thing, aren't they? And that's a pretty, that looks like all the way from the chest to the hips or something. I don't know what this person's dealing with, but it's serious, whatever they've got going on. Or think about this, in the scenes with the man and his wife as he's laying in the hospital bed, lying in the hospital bed, um, there's this card through the handle that says, get well soon, right through there. I just think that's fascinating because it's clearly, was that accidental that the stage prop manager put the get well right through the things you could read it? No, that's meant to pull on your heartstrings, right? The whole idea is to stir you up and get you feeling anxious about this. Because frankly, it would take, I think, blind faith (laughs) to go into the surgery with this doctor who's like, guess who just got reinstated? 
Well, not officially, he says to them. I love that. That's hilarious. So blind faith, I think, is the kind that we often hear about, but is not the kind that the Bible talks about. At least not solely. Right? Biblical faith, I would say, is more than blind faith. Now, some of you, some of the more astute among us biblically are going to say, well, Brian, what about verses like Hebrews 11.1? This is a classic verse that defines faith for us. And as you see, it says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Is that not evidence that faith is meant to be blind, Brian? Because you have an example here of the Bible defining faith in a way that, that specifically says it's about not seeing the evidence of what you believe. Or some of you might say, well, Brian, what about this other story? This story where there's this guy named Thomas. We call him in retrospect Doubting Thomas because he's the guy who, after Jesus is raised from the dead, he says, unless I, put, I can physically put my hands in the nail holes, and unless I can physically put my hand in the wound in his side, I'm just not going to believe. In other words, he's saying, I'm not interested in blind faith. I want some real evidence to this thing. And it's interesting because at one level, Jesus seems to accommodate him. Jesus appears in the room and says, put your hand, put your finger in here. Wherever, wherever, whether it's hand or wrist, we're not quite sure historically, but he invites Thomas to put his hand there. But then Jesus says this interesting thing. He says to him, to, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So again, Jesus seems to be affirming this idea of blind faith. And I would say again that I think there is an element of our Christian faith that has to be blind in some sense. There is no way to prove it ultimately. And yet I would simply say to you again, as a person who has my entire life, I feel like, has been one of intellectual pursuit. That's, just, that's how I'm wired. That's how I engage the world. I, I think my way into almost anything I do. Bill, Bill and I get a kick out of this because Bill's a feeler, right? Bill's a guy who is going to feel his way into an experience. It's so foreign to me. I have no idea. I think my way into things, right? Like, I, I don't even know how to feel something until I've thought about how I'm supposed to feel about it, Right? I don't know if any of you are built that way, but like I think to myself, I'll be watching a movie and something sad will happen and I'll think, this is a sad thing. I ought to feel sad about this. <laughs> like, I feel like I'm, I think I might need to cry, right? And then I finally get to where I may be experiencing a real emotion, you know? So, somebody else has got to be like that. I can't be the only one. You think I'm the only one? Maybe I am. I'm special. <laughs> Sorry, I, when I'm not having to control my own slides, I get way behind and then lose my place and the sermon takes way longer. Um, and nobody wants that. Um, the response of the shepherds, that's where I was headed with all that. The response of the shepherds of looking into it is of such comfort to me. Because... I'm one of those people for whom, yeah, there, there came a point where I had to take a step of faith and I didn't have an idea of where I was going to land. But watching the shepherds 
respond to an angelic visitation by looking into it is of such comfort to me because I believe, and I'm going to make my case for you, that biblical faith is about more than blind faith. There is this element to it, but there is an invitation for anybody else out there like me that needs to lay eyes on something, that needs to have a sense for how it coheres together, that needs to have an appreciation for how things fit and why it goes together and what's happening. I have good news for you today. I think that the shepherd's response invites all of us as Christians to that kind of walk. To one that investigates and looks into and doesn't just take at face value. That's been super important to me. Now I have some verses that I think can help make this case for us. It's not just me saying it. I'm not taking one little set of verses in a story about the shepherds and saying, see, we can investigate. No, I think there is good biblical evidence time and time again. And I'm just going to throw, I think it's four quick examples out. I will try not to make them all of equal length. We'll go through some quickly and we'll take our time with others that will help us appreciate, I think, this idea that we too can look into our Christian faith, that we're being invited to do it. The first place I'd go is in the scripture that we heard, so I won't belabor it, the gathering scripture from Luke 1, 1 to 4. What we have here is the gospel writer Luke, a physician by trade, has been hired by a man named Theophilus, a, a wealthy benefactor, who has said to this man Luke, hey, go and gather evidence for this faith we espouse. Go and look into it. Check it out. And so what Luke does is he says, many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So he's like, a lot of people have put, tried to put this story together, this narrative. Now here's what I'm going to do, he says. With this in mind, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Does that sound like blind faith to you? It isn't blind faith. It's an invitation to carefully investigate, to gather all the eyewitness evidence, to put all the pieces together. To go and collect every bit of information that they can put their hands on that Luke had access to. And to carefully craft it together into a cohesive narrative that we could understand and appreciate. That's pretty cool to me. That's pretty cool because it says I don't have to just take it on somebody's word. I don't have to just walk my entire life of faith out as if there is nothing for me to stand on and every step is just a blind one in the hopes that there'll be a platform for me. No, no, no. The the stability of our faith rests on real, historical accounts. This is real stuff. And that's super important to me. The way I said it last week when I was preaching this sermon to to the congregation I serve is this. If Christianity is wrong, I want to know because I will give up on it immediately. I am just not interested in crafting my entire life. And believe me, that's what I'm trying to do. I am trying to live an integrated life where when I say I believe something, I walk it. 
No, no pretense, no pretending, no saying one thing but doing another. Now, inevitably, I'm a person. I do that. I'm a hypocrite. There are, there are, I, made, I, make, I have made bold proclamations about my faith and not walked them out. I have espoused things that were not part of my walk. I have done all that, just like the rest of you. But I'm telling you this. I'm at a place in my life where I want nothing more than for what I say I believe and what I do to match. And so it's super important to me that when I espouse my Christian faith, it rests on something other than just wish fulfillment, than just me hoping it's all true. I need more than that. And what I hear Luke saying is there is more than that. These are real historical events that a a trained physician and obviously historian looked into deeply and collected all the evidence for. And the, the implied message to every one of us is that this invitation to investigate is open. That we don't have to simply take it all blindly. Some other verses, I, I'll go a little more quickly. Not that I think I need to, but whatever. Acts 17 mentions this people called the Bereans. They're fascinating to me. I love the way this starts. The Bible can be, this feels like a backhanded compliment to me, and I'm glad to know that the Bible has those in it. Watch this. It says, now the Bereans were of a more noble character than the Thessalonians. What? Are there any Thessalonians in the house right now? If so, you should be feeling pretty put upon. Like anybody have... Fam, extended family that are Thessalonians, like that would be a real bummer, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, right? I love that. It's like the Bereans were of more noble character than those fussy Thessalonians who just never could seem to get their act together. It's hilarious to me. Okay, well, anyways, they were of more noble character because they received the message with great eagerness and then, look, examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Paul didn't come out and say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. All of you believe, move on with your lives. <laughs> That's not what he says. He commends, well, Luke wrote Acts as well. Luke has collected all the information, he's gathered it all, and he's looking at these Bereans and he's saying, these people are to be commended because they're not just taking it on blind faith, they're not just hearing the message, they're investigating They're looking every day to see if what they're hearing matches what they've read, matches their life experience. And that's a comforting message to somebody like me. Because I've always needed more than just a, come on up. Come on up and believe it. 1 Peter 3.15 is another interesting passage because it invites us to an explanation, to an investigation. It says, if, you, if you, wor- you worship Christ as Lord of your life, and if someone asks you about your hope, always be ready to explain it. Always be ready to say why you believe. Oh. Sorry, I got more excited than I wanted to right there, but I... I don't know, doesn't it seem important to all of us that we'd be able to explain why we believe what we believe? 
I mean, is there anywhere else in your life that you believe things that you're, you're just completely unable to explain? I mean, maybe. I was just having a conversation about ghosts with somebody recently. And they were like, do you think ghosts are real? And I'm like, I, well, I was saying through what I thought biblically and whatever, but they certainly don't have evidence for me. Right? I presume this person sort of believes in ghosts, but they can't show me. And if I put them on the spot as to why, I presume they wouldn't have a whole lot to explain. I don't know, maybe they'd be like, well, the can of soup moved across the counter. I, I don't know, maybe it did, maybe it was to eat, but um, whatever. I don't, now I, don't, I truly don't know what I'm doing now. Um, <laughs> to me, maybe the, the story that most readily exemplifies this idea that biblical faith is more than blind faith is the one that least looks like it exemplifies what I'm saying. Uh, it's the story of a man named Abraham. Now, that's a name that will be familiar to many of us. If you've been in church for any length of time, you've heard that name before. Here's a guy who was approached by God. Now, this is obviously just a, a screenshot from a mini-series. That's not actually Abraham. But uh, <laughs> it's always funny to me when I put these pictures up because I'm like, just, uh, just an actor. But he's the best we've got all these years later. So I can't show you Abraham. Um, this is meant to be a depiction of Abraham and the boy trailing him, his son Isaac, on their way up a mountain where Abraham is going to kill his son. Now, the Bible uses the word sacrifice, which can be, I, I don't know how euphemistic that is. That doesn't sound any more pleasant to me than killed, but I just thought I'd make it plain. God promised Abraham that he would have a son. Abraham and his wife were well beyond childbearing years. I presume menopause had already happened. I don't know. I wasn't there. But the way the Bible explains it makes it seem like it was physically impossible for them to have kids. And yet God gives them a child. That's the backstory to this. And then God says, and now that I've given you this promised child, I want you to take him up the mountain and kill him. And um, and even before I was a parent, I didn't like this story. I don't, I don't know how any of you feel about it. Uh, I, I'm not a fan. Uh, <laughs> I'll just put that on the table. As a pastor, I'm not a fan of a story in the Bible. Um, especially once you've had children, the thought of killing one of your own kids... I don't even have mental space for that. Like I literally, I don't even have a place I go. There's not a place in my mind where I can go and wrap my head around the thought and go, oh, okay, I'm comfortable with that idea. Theo's thankful for that. Um, and so it would seem, I think in hindsight, the reason I think of this story is because it seems to me that if we're going to look back the only kind of faith we could ever conceive of that would cause a father to walk up a mountain with his son to kill him is blind faith. Like in my mind, that's the only kind that would in any way explain this story. How do you explain it any other way besides Abraham just like shutting off whatever part of his mind does the fathering and the caring and the loving and the listening and all that. He just shuts that off and goes like, well, God said it. I guess here I go. 
I'm going to kill my son. I think that's the only way we, that's the only way I can possibly sort of conceive of the headspace that he might have been in. And yet, here's what's fascinating to me. The Bible explains it as something entirely other than that. The Bible doesn't explain it as blind faith causing Abraham to walk up that mountain and sacrifice his son, and he doesn't end up having to sacrifice him. What the Bible says is that it does say this in Hebrews 11, 17 to 19, that it was by faith granted that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. It says, Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Kind of said all that. Here's the fascinating part. The very next verse says, Abraham reasoned. The Bible says Abraham reasoned his way up that mountain. He didn't didn't blind faith his way up. The Bible says he reasoned his way up that mountain because he figured to himself, if Isaac dies, God's able to bring him back again. Here's the fascinating thing about this story to me. Abraham is able to walk up that mountain because he thinks to himself, I have seen God come through before, so I know he can do it again. I have seen God give us a child when it was impossible to have one, so I know he can do it again. I have been called from one place to another. God's original call on Abraham's life was, leave the place you live and go somewhere else that I will show you. And so Abraham takes that first step. And then presumably God leads him along the way. And Abraham reasons his way to the top of the mountain with Isaac because he figures God has been faithful all along and I've watched it. So God can be faithful again. And I see in this story the same thing I see and the same pattern I see in these other examples. And that is that we do not need to have blind faith as Christians. That, that Christ, There is an element of that, but that Faith, in the Christian sense, is about more than blind faith. Oh, let's skip the rest of our stuff because let's just skip through to the conclusions back there. I think we've belabored these points long enough. (laughs) Theo cheered on all your behalf when I said that, so just so you know... Um, yeah, to his credit, or his, he has heard this sermon last week, so two weeks in a row, it's, that's fine. I mean, I, I feel free to give, fee- I mean, if you're ready for the sermon to be done, just start tuning me out. Uh, just kidding, don't do that. You do that anyways, so um, that's what I've found over the years is that people just do that anyways, and I just keep talking. All right, so let's talk about some some. I think, meaningful ways that we can apply this idea to our lives. The first is, I've said it a number of times, that biblical faith is about more than blind faith. But I think one of the things that we can do with that is we can appreciate that as Christians, questions and skepticism or scrutiny are welcome parts of our journey. I don't know if you've ever been told that before. But hear it from a guy who thinks of himself as a pastor, who's, do, who's, who's doing his best to walk the walk, who's trying to live a faithful biblical life. Let me just say that as much as I know it, questions, scrutiny, investigation. 
And it, it does, doesn't that feel like it's time? It does start to feel, I said to tune me out, but she doubled down, went the other direction. So I'll, I'll go even faster because, you know, I mean, at a certain point, the pastor's made his point and you've received what you're going to receive and let's move on, right? Let's be honest. Um, let me tell you a cool story to kind of conclude, though. How about that? I'll do the classic. If you've been tuning out, come back now. I don't know if that works. I've seen other pastors do it. Um, I think a couple things we can conclude from this idea of looking at the shepherds and their response to the good news. And one of the things we can do is see that they looked into it, that they investigated their faith. And I simply would want to say to you, if you're a Christian person or if you're, if you're somebody who's been interested in the Christian faith, wondered about it, looked into it, found it a little wanting maybe at times, I would just say you're in good company. That, that this idea of investigating the Christian faith is very much a part of the journey for many of us. Some of us find it vital that we can do this. And, and I would simply say it is part of a faithful Christian response to look into the message and ask it to stand on its own two feet, to support all the weight it purports to carry. That's okay to do. I would say this too. I think that as a result of this invitation to investigate the Christian faith, we, and, and if you've ever felt any pressure to like be uh, Jesus in the world, I mean, in some sense that's fair, right? There's this kind of classic Christian idea that the only Jesus people will ever see is the Jesus in you, perhaps. Um, I happen to think Jesus was doing just fine before I came into the world and that he'll be doing just fine after I leave the world. I, like to, I, I, I have a growing awareness of both my importance to the people around me and God's complete lack of need for me, right? Like God will do just fine with God's plan. And so one of the things that I've discovered is the joy of not having to be Jesus' public defender. Because why? I mean, if somebody's investigating and finding things about the Christian faith they don't find to be so palatable in the short run, no problem. It either stands or falls, right? And, and, and the best I can do is live a, a life that might be an example to somebody, but I cannot make anyone believe. And I don't feel any need at this point in my life to be a public defender for Jesus. And let me tell you a fun story about, so one day a week or so, I travel to Milwaukee and I do construction for a living. This goes back to this fun story that I don't tell all that often because it doesn't make me look very good, but it's a fun story. Several years back, I reached in my own pocket and I had a piece of paper in my pocket and I got a paper cut on my finger in my own pocket. And when I pulled my finger out and looked at the paper cut, I thought, what kind of, what's the word? Um, what kind of wussy gets a paper cut just from reaching into his own pocket. I thought, I have got the softest hands in the entire world. That's all that means. So I thought, I need to do something about this. I don't like having super soft hands. So I went to my buddy who does construction. He's like, why don't you work for me one day a week? We'll toughen those things up. And it hasn't worked. I still have, I still have baby soft hands. But, um, but what I have had a chance to do is meet a bunch of rough around the edges people who work in a shop, who work in the trades, 
right? I've also taken up smoking because I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. But <laughs> I, I, I know almost no tradespeople who don't smoke cigarettes. That's just a thing. That's just like a thing. So um, what I, there's this guy named Jeremy in the shop. Jeremy's an interesting guy. He looks like a dark Jedi. That's how I think of him. He's got this weird goatee, and he wears these hoods, and he comes in with this brooding look on his face all the time. And uh, he's got two brothers-in-law who are pastors, and he hates everything about Christianity. And um, one of his brothers is a pastor at a megachurch, and uh, he thinks even less of the guy as a result, I guess. I don't really know. But um, Jeremy's interesting because Jeremy will often talk about how Uh, how little he thinks of the Christian church and how little he thinks of Christians, that he basically just thinks we're all hypocrites. And what I've discovered in my interactions with Jeremy is that I have almost no room to disagree with him. I'm like, you're right, we are all hypocrites. (laughs) You too, by the way, Jeremy. (laughs) And, um, And yeah, and the Christian church has not been all that great. We do a lot of neat things, but there's a lot of warts and difficulties and ugliness to us. And what I find so fascinating about Jeremy is that whenever I agree with him about all this stuff, whenever I don't feel the need to be Jesus' public defender in the world, when I just say, like, you're right, man, every accusation you lay at our feet, we are guilty of. Um, A few weeks ago on the job site, Jeremy and I are talking, and he's like, the other guy I work with is Jeff, the guy who purports to toughen my hands up. Uh, Jeremy said, I was talking about my Christian faith with Jeremy, and he said, he's like, yeah, he's like, Brian, I tell everybody about you and Jeff and your faith. I was like, what? Jeremy, the non-Christian guy who hates everything about the church, is my biggest evangelist? Like, he's out telling people about my Christian faith, simply because, I think, in large part, because I don't feel the need to defend Jesus, I don't feel the need to be anything other than what I am, a person investigating the claims, a person trying to live my life around them, a person trying to say, if it's true, and to the best of my knowledge, it is, if it's true, my entire life better be wrapped up in it. If this stuff is true, my entire life better be wrapped up in it. And I think that's the the invitation for us. As we hear this message, as we look at the shepherds, the invitation for us all these years later, and and it might be especially important for some of us, is to hear the good news and look into it, to investigate, to be ready to explain, to not have to be the public defender of Jesus, but just to let the kind of warts and all of the church rest in yours too, and to invite people to look into it, just to say, whatever you discover, Go for it, because I'm not going to try and hide a thing about me or the faith I espouse. And I've just found people respond to that so much more readily than all the pretense we tend to live into. So, if you'll please join me in prayer.